Welcome to the Mastering Retention Podcast, presented by UserWise, where we talk to top mobile game experts about their experiences running successful games. My name is Mike, and I work on the marketing team. This week, Rudy Saldivar, lead product manager at Robin Games, joins Tom to discuss how you can build a thriving game economy that competes. They'll discuss how to address issues in your game economy, how to solve those issues, and how to keep your players around longer. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Uh, today, we've got uh, Rudy Saldivar on with us, and I'm Tom Hammond, uh, co-founder of UserWise and your host, of course. Um, Rudy, you have an interesting I mean, I feel like everyone has an interesting journey of like how they got into games, but yours is, is particularly fascinating kind of through the finance route. Um, and, and now you're kind of at uh, Robin Games. But uh, before we like dive into everything, uh, I'd love to just hear like, what is your story? Like, how'd you get into games and, and doing what you're doing today? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, thanks for thanks for having me on today, Tom. I'm a big, big fan of the podcast. Um, so I actually started my career in oil and gas as an investment banker. Uh, very, very different than, uh, than gaming. Um, I was actually working a lot with uh, petroleum engineers and geologists to basically uh, come up with valuations for oil and gas assets. So uh, kind of the complete opposite of where I am today. Um, I knew that that wasn't the industry that I wanted to stay in because I think it's, it's obviously something that's, that, that I didn't see a ton of growth in. I, I, I had some issues with sustainability, that sort of thing. Uh, so I ended up going to uh, private equity, working for a firm in the Bay Area, um, which is really cool because I was around a lot of tech people and that sort of thing, but less cool because I was still doing a lot of things that were related to commodities and things that were not, not quite as sexy as gaming. Um, I found myself doing a lot of very operationally intensive work. So I was working with uh, a lot of executives and a lot of analysts at our portfolio companies, as well as a lot of our acquisition prospects, doing a lot of what you see product managers uh, kind of do in their day-to-day, -day, which is digging through data, looking at kind of the key drivers of performance, and then basically figuring out ways to, to kind of make that better. Um, the thing for me was whenever I was looking, I was kind of like getting into these, these sort of situations with different, um, you know, portfolio companies or different, different acquisition targets. Um, I, I was kind of missing that connection of like what's actually happening on the ground. Um, I, have a, I had a really cool handful of experiences where like I could go to a recycling center that, you know, that one of our companies owned and like see these like huge machines in action, or I could go to like a transloading center and see like, uh, like tons and tons of frac sand being loaded onto a, uh, you know, like a, a, a rail car or something wild. Right. But it, it was kind of hard for me to get super excited about that as an end user. Uh, I don't think anyone goes to the gas station and get super pumped to be pumping gas, you know? Um, so whenever I was kind of a couple of years into that, I, I started really thinking about what, what really I could be passionate about and something that I could find that, that really connected with me as a user. And I started looking at a lot of different industries that that um, were mostly fun. So I had the kind of the, the luxury of like having uh, been in private equity for, for a couple of years and having a little bit of a cushion. So I started looking at a lot of different industries where I think I could really identify mostly as the, the person that's kind of receiving that end product. Um, for me, it was really challenging because uh, I was in a, a really like business to business sort of environment. So the kind of like X factor was like understanding consumer products. 
But the thing that I kind of really leveraged, uh, especially whenever I was like having this sort of early conversations of figuring out how I could ever get a foothold in gaming was um, using a lot of the sort of skills that I developed within my sort of career to date, which is like, you know, digging through, uh, digging through annual reports from publicly traded companies, uh, talking to people that I could like kind of find in the industry that give me the time of day, uh, basically just kind of doing the due diligence to come up with the sort of base set of knowledge that I think made me somewhat credible for the very early conversations that I had uh, with people in the industry. So for me, it was really just kind of understanding the lay of the land, kind of understanding like what, what KPIs that people in gaming really cared about. Uh, and then understanding the business side of things from like a, a more holistic perspective and being able to kind of translate that into the value that I could potentially add at a company that did this. So for me, it was really about um, finding people that were responsive to uh, kind of my, my background that, that didn't really come from uh, gaming at all. I think I actually started talking to a guy named Chris Paulson, who was uh, chief of staff to the CEO of Activision, um, who was kind of going over to Blizzard to start this new sort of strategy group. And he had like a similar experience of like he was, uh, he'd actually worked for a uh, a startup uh, doing something completely different and then kind of made his way into gaming as well. So it was really cool to be with a bunch of other, uh, other sort of former uh, consultants and bankers starting this like brand new group at Blizzard and really kind of getting our, our hands dirty in gaming. Um, I think the, the big sort of challenge there, especially at a place like Blizzard was uh, we're, we're like heightened, hyper, hyper outsiders, you know? Um, and it, it's, it's, it's a really interesting tension because I think a lot of us were gamers at our core. A lot of us had like grown up gaming and a lot of us had still like gamed even as we were, you know, uh, uh, working these like crazy hour weeks. So I remember the, the first guy that I, I uh, reported to at Blizzard, um, he, he'd come from McKenzie and he would tell me these awesome stories about like, you know, staying up till 2 a.m. working on deals or whatever they were working on. And then from like 2 to 5 a.m. he'd be playing Civilization or something crazy. So it's really cool to see these people who kind of have their like, uh, they're not their facade, but the, the thing that they that most people see them as and see them doing, but then they have that really cool secret gamer persona, bringing that to light. And then I think really embracing that was like a really cool experience that I think um, kind of sucked me deeper and deeper into the more operational aspects of gaming that really, really get me excited. I love that, man. No, I, I remember in my early career, um, I was kind of doing uh some kind of consulting work where we'd go into hospitals and help them install like really sophisticated software and stuff. And uh, yeah, eventually I found one of my fellow consultants, we would both kind of go back to our respective hotel rooms and then we'd pop on like League of Legends and like play late into the night and stuff. So yeah, I love that. So are, are you, you know, this whole strategy thing, you know, did you come in with that investment banker thing and then set up this, you know, $70 billion acquisition? And, you know, stop. <laughs> I, I wish I could. I, I wish I could have some sort of really amazing story like that, but it's actually a lot less exciting. Um, I, I ended up actually taking a pretty big uh, kind of like both pay and title cut to get into gaming. So I think that's another kind of big thing for me, and something that I tell a lot of people that I've spoken to that are trying to make a similar sort of move. Usually, it's like analysts who are working hundred-hour work weeks, hate their life, and are just kind of looking for any sort of hope to look forward to. 
um, it, it definitely takes a bit of sacrifice and it takes a lot of patience to kind of get from that first state of like, as a strategy guy, I was still a little bit more hands off. Uh, I, I was very lucky at Blizzard early on to be embedded within Team 5, so the Hearthstone studio, um, which is really, really exciting. Um, I, I think I had to work really, really hard and be very, very vocal about my interest in like getting more involved in actual game design and production uh, to really yeah. get to that step. And e even at a place like Blizzard, I, I definitely got a lot farther than I think a lot of my peers did uh, within the walls of Blizzard. But I think it really kind of wasn't until Scopely that I really got to, you know, start making my own multi-week events, designing gotchas, doing things like that, that I really kind of considered, you know, very nitty gritty uh, game production and operation, you know? Yeah, totally. And then from Scopely, you're now kind of at uh, Robin Games. Well, what are you guys up to there? Yeah, so Robin's a really, really cool place to be at. I, th I think the, the, the thing that really uh, got me interested in Robin was the fact that uh, they're really interested in addressing a more diverse audience. It, it kind of redefining what we think of as gamers. Uh, something that gets glossed over, and I think I, I love these statistics, is that uh, so much of these, so many mobile gamers are, are women, right? Like, so most, most, uh, I, I think actually most gamers, most mobile gamers are women. Um, and I think that traditionally a lot of gaming companies, they, they don't really appreciate that. I think it's a very underserved, underappreciated part of the market that doesn't really get as much content that, that, that they really deserve. Um, so what we're kind of doing at Goblin, Robin Games is we're, we're trying to find a way to uh, take what we're calling lifestyle content. And I think that you can kind of think of that as like, you know, what you'd see in, uh, in a design magazine, like an Architectural Digest or a Condé Nast, things that people kind of, um, kind of relate more or would indulge themselves on like social media, that sort of thing. Uh, and then figuring out how to how to manifest that in a mobile game. Um, so I, I can't say too, too much, unfortunately, about what exactly we're working on right now, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool design game. It has some pretty unique mechanics relative to what we see for other participants in the space. Uh, and I think it's a lot of fun. I'm really excited for, for it to go out and, and be in the world in the, hopefully a couple of short months here. That's awesome. So, you know, being that you have that finance background, I'm sure that everyone all automatically assumed that I was going to ask you a lot of game economy questions because <laughs> well, it's one of my favorite topics. And I also think, you know, a lot of people, especially like game designers that were maybe like historically trained or whatnot come in, they don't really think about game economies. At least, you know, games have really shifted from a, you build it once and you ship it. And then you work on, you know, Diablo one's first, now it's Diablo two, then we go to Diablo three or whatnot. And, and most of those traditional games, like you don't really have to worry about the economy that much. Like maybe you balance it a little bit, like in the beginning of the game, but usually by the time you get to like the end game and you're super powerful, it's like economies, you know, through the roof. It doesn't matter that you can buy everything because it's like the end of the game and you're super powerful and stuff. It doesn't really work that way in like free to play games. Like you have to actually consciously like think about the economy for the long term uh, because the player could be playing this for three or five, 10 years. Um, and most people don't think that the game economy actually drives fun, but I would actually argue that uh, a lot of it actually is based around the economy of if you give too little it's not going to be fun and if you give too much then it's also not fun and really balancing that out i think is super challenging so with all that in mind um i'd love to hear like what's your approach to looking at a game economy you know within a game 
I think it's a great question. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that I feel very, very strongly that engagement is very, very closely tied to economy. I think actually uh, a lot of people might underestimate how much of a, uh, a strong impact that you can make on even like retention metrics by just uh, making sure that your economy uh, fits your players sort of appetite for gameplay in just the right way. Um, I, I think whenever it comes to setting yourself up for success with economy design, it's really, it's really got to be super, super forward looking. Um, I, 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 I can't under, under uh, emphasize the importance of the system design aspect of, of economy design, not, not just uh, internally, like with, within the own economics of the, the game itself, but I think like for all other aspects of gameplay that you're kind of thinking through, especially whenever you're coming through, how do we think about features? How do we sort of plot things against a roadmap? How do we kind of uh, pull everything together in a really cohesive sort of fulsome experience? So I think I think economy design, especially whenever you're thinking about um, making making things future proof, really has to be done uh, with your sort of extremes uh, in mind. I think that's like a really great starting point. Um, I, whenever I'm uh, uh, whenever I'm doing economy modeling, so I think this is another thing where finance really serves me well. Um, I a, a lot of my time is spent in Excel doing doing modeling of like you know uh, of, of different like financial forecast, but also operating models. So um, I can like whip up a model of like an economy or new feature pretty quickly. A lot of it's just stress testing, right? I think uh, there are some pretty sophisticated programs out there for uh, simulating content for kind of understanding the different um, extremities that could arise out of different uh, economy model or economy models that you might try to adopt. And a lot of the work that I've done so far, it's really, um, it, it's really been kind of focused with like understanding the actual gameplay that we're seeing players uh players play for lack of a better word um seeing the actual user behavior understanding like what their own limits are and then kind of marrying that to the economy constraints that we put on them for whatever new features whatever sort of gameplay that we're trying to develop so i think uh, another really important thing here is really understanding not only the the quantitative aspects of like how your users are engaging with your content but more importantly the motivations for how and why they're doing that right i think uh, it's a really easy trap to fall into if you're looking at something like a login mechanic right a daily login reward uh, and under Understanding, hey, players, players are logging in every day and they're collecting this reward, this reward and our Dow Wow is amazing, right? I think that's really cool. But if they're if that's not serving some sort of greater purpose or if that's not really helping you to do anything other than a, like inflate that KPI, I think you really have to kind of think a little bit more deeply about what your real purpose and motivations are here. Um, and I, I think something else that really is important here is just like making economy fun, right? I think uh, this is where it's really, really important to put yourself in the user's position of like understanding what it feels like to really be pinched or to really um, feel that big reward moment. I, I, I think that rewards are exciting games, right? Like we do so much, so much of gaming is about that validation of victory or achievement or that sort of satisfaction of like having done something, having achieved something, having earned something, you know? And I think that something that I've learned, especially in working in, in mid-core titles has been that players really, really um, put, value the time that they put into the game and they want to see that validated. And it doesn't have to be with necessarily some super overpowered character or some extreme like game breaking thing. It can it can be something that just really gives them a note, gives them some sort of um, mark of appreciation that makes them feel validated and recognized. That's not to sorry. I love that. Yeah. Now, I remember I was talking to uh, one of my uh, friends. Actually, we, we did a, a master retention roundtable with a few other game economists. And I think one of the lessons that they all agreed on in it was play the build 
So, you know, no matter how perfect you think, you know, in your spreadsheet, giving this one gem is going to be to the player when you then go and play it and then you get a gem and you're like super disheartened as the player, like you gotta, you gotta go back and actually make it fun when you're, you know, designing it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's, uh, it's definitely requires a lot of trial, trial and error. You know, I think um, I love the, the motto iterate to success. I think economy design especially is, is definitely, a, uh, adheres very strongly to that value. So one of the things you kind of talked about was you should be kind of future proofing or like planning for the future. Um, how far should you be thinking about from like a, the economy? Is it three years? Is it five years? Like what's, what's too far? And, and, you know, I think it's kind of hard in some ways to like plan out there, but yeah, what's your approach to that? So I think that's a really good question. I, I've uh, I've had the privilege and also the curse of working on games that are like four or five years old, Hearthstone, The Walking Dead, Road to Survival. Um, and it's very clear that, uh, that a lot of systems, whenever they were first devised, weren't necessarily built for a four or five-year-old game. And I think the challenge that happens there is that um, we kind of, we, we assume, hey, this game a year, one, two years from now is going to have the, the same sort of base system, but we don't really take into account the new features that we're going to add, the new problems we might be trying to solve, uh, the, the kind of sprints that we might have to make to kind of like make ends meet from like a PL perspective. I think a lot of my sort of philosophy, especially now that I'm an environment, building something from scratch and iterating on it, um, I, I really kind of think about, you know, the short-term versus the long-term trade-offs. So in my mind, I try to think about the user experience, right? Like, what does the user experience look like at day 30, at day 90, six months out, a year, two, three years from now? And I really have to prioritize what I think is, what where, where I kind of have the give and take in terms of creating that space. So I, I think it's less less about creating like a firm line in the sand of like this feature is going to give us you know years of runway but really along those two or three years that i'm going to develop and grow this economy where do i have the most levers to pull and where can i kind of move things around to make that runway last as long as i'd want it to last for me it's a lot about flexibility and just being able to be hyper hyper adaptive to the ongoing day-to-day -day needs relative to your longer sort of product goals so i think about world of warcraft um and World of Warcraft has had numerous broken economies. And I feel like just about every time they release an expansion, it ends up eventually kind of becoming broken. Um, and, and the way that they have solved this is rather than trying to have like one unified economy that kind of works through everything, it's like, okay, in the new expansion, this new thing is actually going to be valuable. We have a chance to kind of start from scratch, just rebalance it, get everything, you know, mostly into... And yeah, it might get broken by the end of it, but then we'll do something, you know, new in the Does that model make sense in like a free to play type of a scene or, you know, do you really have to try to keep to the one economy or is it like, should you have different phases of your economy at like different stages in your game? I think something with free-to-play, especially knowing uh, knowing that mid-core players invest a lot of their own money and time and working with the content that they have, I think it's really important to maintain at least some 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 pretty significant component of continuity. Um, whenever I've seen games reset, even if it's in soft launch, the KPIs are brutal, right? I think uh, you can look at uh, even uh, Clash Royale, whatever it first launched, there's some pretty significant balancing changes that really were almost devastating to, to the game, to the audience, right? They came back, but not every title does. 
Um, so I think that continuity with a game like World of Warcraft, you have so many hardcore players that are very, very um, familiar with the systems, familiar with the curve that it takes to get that in-game content and kind of used to that cadence of like being set back that mm -hmm. they're going to be a lot more resilient just because they do have the time investment, but the monetary investment just isn't there. Whenever you start to deprecate the monetary value of what a player's put into the game, you'll almost instantly see a pretty severe backlash. I think players um, get pretty Pretty they, I know players get very, very upset and they, they kind of challenge why they continue to play the game, which is something that you never really want to see. Um, definitely a, a, a fine line to walk because uh, over time, you know, there, there is, you always want more features. And I think that uh, a lot of players want to see new features, but I think it's really important to balance that growth with um, systems and just processes that really honor the, the time and the, the, even the monetary investment of your, your players to date, just so you don't lose, um, lose that. I think that uh, it's just something that, that's very risky that, that you really don't want to have to impair uh, much at all. So for those games that, are I'm going to say four or five years old and and maybe a lot of players already have the content and they've got massive amounts of things and you're trying to figure out like how do I get my spend depth and my progression and things like back in line like is there a, an approach that you would recommend you know starting with because I think there's a lot of games that are kind of in that spot absolutely i i think the the most important thing is to really understand what 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 are your users experiencing now what's working and what's not working i it's it's always helpful to understand to like um to kind of know where you've come from and to kind of like know the past and where you want to be. But I think there's no time like the present for like understanding like what are the what is the actual gameplay behavior that I'm trying to like optimize around. I think another really important thing is that mature users, golden cohorts, players that really have stuck with the game for a long time, they have an appetite for change. They definitely are excited to see new things. But I think it's really important not to deviate too far from those foundational elements of gameplay if your goal is to really capitalize and continue to sort of embrace on those core users. What I found is whenever we've introduced dramatically different features or dramatically new gameplay loops, they actually typically do better with newer users or newer cohorts than our more traditional players. And that's just because our old players don't really want to go through all the pain of learning these new systems, especially if it's not going to be super additive to that foundational gameplay. So I think like I cannot preach enough, really respect your core loop and don't lose sight of that, no matter how old your game is. You talked a lot about spreadsheets and stuff. Have you ever tried using like uh, machinations for, for modeling? I know sometimes you can do like, hey, you know, play this a thousand times with, you know, X number of users and kind of see the modeling over time. Yeah, so we, I've, I've run a lot of uh, internal sort of simulations. Uh, I've done some bigger simulations on SQL as well. We, I've had the privilege, especially like Scopely and even uh, to a very small extent at Robin, it's just kind of hard with resources to leverage data science. Um, we, we currently are, we've explored using simulations. Uh, there's a simulation program from Unity uh, that allows you to like do a lot of balancing for things like economy design. It does require a bit of upfront work. And I think it's, it's something that requires a pretty dedicated investment. So I think, you know, for smaller studios like us, we're kind of reliant on less, less fancy, less sophisticated algorithms. Um, but uh, I, I think the larger studio environments definitely, um, have, have those resources and, and you can do it. In, in my experience, like whatever, whatever I've been going through, um, uh, 
my own sort of uh, word novel <laughs> economy constructs. Um, I, I've been able to make do with, with less sophisticated or le less like, you know, machine intensive sort of uh, training algorithms. But I, I know, especially in the in the um, the casual space with like matched redesign, uh, it's a, it's pretty, pretty, pretty much a staple now to kind of run those those AI driven processes. No, machination is kind of cool. I, I've not really used it that much. I always just default back to Excel because I'm kind of lazy um, and, and do what I like. But um, I've seen people make some really cool simulations really fast. And apparently they have like a Unity SDK and stuff too. So that like, if you model up something that works well, you can just like click a button and it'll sync to those uh, values in Unity or whatnot. So you can just kind of like tweak and optimize. So it seems cool, but yeah, yeah. I, th I think machination is really important. Whenever you, it's really important to get things very, very, very finely tuned. I think to the extent that you have uh, wiggle room in terms of like outcomes, it's okay to deal with the smaller data sets. But I think whatever it really, really matters that the, like you know very finite and nuanced stat is exactly right. I think that's where it becomes a lot more important that you do a lot of AI or not even AI driven, but just automated sort of testing and validation of those sort of things. Okay. So I have a question and I'm trying to figure out how to word it. Um, I always find that often when you release content, you might've gone through what I think is like the perfect amount of modeling and you think it's going to take players two months to get through this content and stuff. And I kid you not, it's like two days and you've got players that are like all the way through it and stuff. So. Uh, I guess my general question is like, do you have any thoughts or recommendations on how to model your economy and, you know, features and stuff when, you know, maybe one segment of players is going to play like five minutes per day, but then your heavily engaged users are going to play like 15 hours a day, or maybe they normally play eight hours, but you release new content and suddenly they like jump up to 15 and you didn't expect that. So how do you handle like such massive varieties in like people's playtime? I think it's a really, really good question. I, I've definitely, especially early on in my, my like live ops days, I've definitely made the mistake of underestimating just how aggressively players will, will kind of engage with content. I think the the important thing here is uh, a leveraging statistics. So we we try to like understand the different um, variations that can exist in our audience behavior, and we try to conform our modeling to address that. So I think I'm always thinking about extreme cases, and then like just like I I, I generally. Think of my audience in quartiles. So I'll think about like my min case, my max case, 25, 50th, and then 75th percentile. And I'm really trying to cater every sort of system interaction towards an outcome uh, for each of those different variations in user behavior. They can really generate um, uh, the this type of gameplay, or at least like the economic sort of uh, system that I think is going to uh, ultimately sort of be delivered within the range of val values that are going to be acceptable for me. A lot of it's kind of getting comfortable with that discomfort that there are going to be players that are going to be completely breaking your system. I think the important thing is just understanding what those extremes are and making sure that as uncomfortable as you're going to be, that you're, you're not going to completely destroy the game or do something crazy. I think the more important thing is whenever you're looking at your kind of average player, to the extent that you can leverage not just systems frameworks, but features that help to um, create differentiation in terms of how those players are rewarded for their time and their investment. I think that's actually something that I've leveraged a lot um, just because it helps to create natural barriers to things like oversourcing. So for me, a, a feature that I cannot, uh, that I really, really love, that I've used very aggressively uh, has been like achievements and mission types of features. So things like 
um, you know, complete X number of projects a day, do, you know, uh, completely do things like um, not, not just log in, but like use currency or uh, do X, Y, and Z in like a project or whatever. Um, uh, we, we can actually use a lot of that sort of achievement framework to naturally create um, breakpoints for engagement or for currency spend or a variety of other uh, aspects of gameplay that are kind of naturally moderating in their ability to source content without mandating a similar amount of sync. So I think, you know, with economy design, so much of it is, is maintaining balance or at least maintaining whatever sort of disparity that is working for your game. Um, I think to the extent that you could actually like gate uh, certain outcomes behind engagement thresholds or spend thresholds in a very naturally surface way to players, the better off you're going to be just because A, those systems are super dynamic, easy to tweak on the fly. B, they make sense to players, just in that I think a lot of players have been familiarized with achievement-based systems. They like the kind of like mini quest of, hey, you know, use 10 pieces of this, this item in a, in a project or, yeah. you know, do this one thing 10 times. It's, it's kind of a fun like mini game. Um, it, it, I, I think that there, there's a lot of dynamicism that I've explored in, in multiple games now there that have a pretty, pretty high uh, rate of success just in terms of making sure that I'm, uh, stabilizing the economic range of outcomes uh, that could potentially manifest themselves in the, in the game. That's really good. So thinking about these maybe like quartiles that you talked about, um, does it make sense to um, like try to design a feature that's maybe like catered to this group or like their play styles and do some sort of, you know, rotation through the different you know, in terms of like what features you're releasing? Absolutely. I, I think any part of feature development really has to be pretty specific about what exactly they're trying to achieve, but also who exactly they're trying to, to kind of work it for. So I think like, you know, um, if we take a, a weapon system, for example, in like a mid-core game, uh, we know that, uh, that uh, depending on how many different outcomes are possible in the system and what the probability is gaining each of those outcomes and all the different combinations, that's going to require a very deep level of investment and a very deep level of engagement to attain. Therefore, we kind of know it's more tailored towards our more engaged players, our elder players, our deep spenders. So we're going to kind of build the game, that, that system's economics or that system's probabilities with that in mind. Um, I think a lot of the, uh, a, a lot of feature development for mature games has very, very specific targets in mind, right? It's usually going to be something that's going to be driven between, hey, let's, let's figure out how we can better monetize our elder players. Let's figure out how we can improve some of our early frontal retention. Let's figure out how we can get more players to day 30 that might be having a little bit of a tough time to get started out with. So I think using using those different trajectories, using uh, gameplay personas, I think is very helpful. And just understanding like, how players are actually responding to the different pressures that you might be applying to them to reach a certain outcome or the features that you might be introducing to them in order to achieve a certain goal. Um, again, really, really important to making sure that you um, arrive at the, the sort of outcomes that you're trying to that you're, that you're shooting for really that you're, you're kind of doing what you want to do and not doing something that's going to kind of lead you off, lead you astray especially from a kpi perspective yeah so if your game does have certain let's say revenue targets you might want to just be cognizant of that as you're thinking about you know maybe focusing on whichever group 
you know, accounts for most of the revenue and the features that you're kind of designing for them. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it's uh, almost triage in a way. Like you really have to, you have to understand that um, and no matter what, how big of a company or how well-resourced you are, there's always going to be trade-offs in development time and feature prioritization and X, Y, and Z. I think really like uh, I rely on foundations. I, I kind of rely on like, you know, we have this sort of core engine that is our game and we have these different uh, aspects of that that are serving different purposes, which ones need the most help, which ones are going to be the most effective towards attaining, attaining those sort of like revenue goals or retention targets. Um, a, a big part of it is, is really just understanding like what is the MVP, like what is the bare minimum that I can get away with before I can move on to the thing that I really want to be working on or really be focusing on, um, especially, again, I cannot say it enough, especially in a resource constrained environment, like that, that sort of aptitude at priority management is like definitely the thing that's going to make you or break you at the end of the day. Mm, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you were talking about a little bit. And you said, if you have the wrong game economy, it can actually hurt engagement. What does that actually mean? So I, I think the the easiest example of this is a game that's like extremely pinchy, an extremely pinchy midcore game, right? Like they'll they'll kind of give you a really amazing fatui. They'll maybe have like a, a great hour or two of session, uh, and then you hit a really hard wall where you cannot get past it without monetizing. I think we've all experienced that sometime or another in a game that we've played. I think the challenge with that is that if you have a really really dedicated hardcore user that's going to make it through no matter what, great. As long as you can monetize them, you might have a viable product. Truth of the matter is dealing with that sort of cliff moment, that like really hard gut check is something that most users are just not going to make it through. So I think the real secret to like introducing players to a mid-core game is giving them enough chances to succeed early on while still leaving enough interesting opportunities, mostly again for that top 25th percentile or that top, you know, 10th percentile of users who are really going to be super, super hardcore to monetize, then giving the rest of the players kind of that space to develop, mature, get familiar with the game's systems and a economics where they can then sustain uh, longer term, maybe in a little bit more of a punishing environment. But I think really it's it's about how you nurture that early player experience, how you, um, how you sort of build resiliency and sort of like train those users and what to expect without being too, too punishing too, too early on. How would you kind of monitor for, you know, a spot where like my economy might be too rewarding or too punishing, like if you had a game, you know, how, how would you dig into that kind of thing? Would you just throw it to your data scientist and say, hey, help me find it if this exists or... Um so I, I I love analytics. I actually I spend most of my most of my time here at Robin uh, on on analytics. Um, what 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 I really like to do is basically track user journey and then understand cause and effect. So a lot of a lot of what I do for economy balancing now is really understanding how far into the game are players progressing, um, and trying to create systems frameworks that make that more measurable. So um, one thing that we've done recently is introduced uh, more more linear content tracks that basically allow us to funnel a lot of players into very particular aspects of gameplay uh, and then kind of measure how they progress throughout. Those types of constructs make the analytical framework a lot easier, but also make the user journey a lot more justifiable. I think it makes it a lot easier for players to kind of get onboarded to play. Um, in terms of like understanding what's working, what's not working, where that pinch point is, it's really just kind of figuring how players 
behavior changes over time, right? So mm -hmm. it's nice to have like a benchmark of, hey, we know that after X games or X sessions, players are going to be at this, you know, we're going to be in this range of hard currency states. Once you kind of have that in mind and you can start experimenting with different, you know, values of sync and different values of source throughout that sort of process, you really get a lot better of a sense of how impactful the changes that you're making are to that sort of user journey, as well as how close you're tracking towards those intended outcomes, depending on like how extreme those sort of calibrations are, are kind of being made. I think the biggest thing here is um, with an unlimited amount of time, you can iterate as many times as you want and you could get probably the finest tuning that you could ever dream of achieving. But the reality is we don't have that sort of luxury, right? I don't think anyone really does. So the, the kind of art here is really understanding as you sort of make those adjustments, as you do that fine tuning, finding that sweet spot of big enough to make an impact, but not so big that I'm not gonna be able to ever find that sort of Goldilocks zone that I'm really looking for. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. And yeah, so, especially for that early first time user experience, it makes sense to have it very linear. You know, you want to avoid the Genshin impact open world player can go literally do anything kind of scenario just for tracking what happened and where the follows are, right? Yeah, I, th I think that it's it's really a balance of the two, right? Because there are some players that are really inclined to exploration and really inclined to that off-world experience. Uh, I'm not sure how you play tutorials, but I never, I, I like go through them as quickly as possible, yep. try to, to pick up a single thing. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of players are like that, right? But not necessarily all players. So I think the real secret there is, um, a creating enough space that those types of players can kind of flourish in a like pseudo freeform environment. But the dirty secret is it's really the illusion of choice, right? It's making players believe that they have more options available to them than they really do. And then kind of giving them the right opportunities, setting them on the right paths to get to that sort of state that they're looking for of freeform play or of um, you know less constrained gameplay um, by things like engaging really heavily or monetizing or you know taking certain steps that uh, kind of define their own user experience as they wish to sort of see their their own gameplay i wanted to switch gears just a little bit um you touched on feature prioritization and, and feature rollout and stuff and i i think this is something that is uh, super key um you know one one thing that i honestly think is missing in the industry you know we've got all these great tools like app annie and sensor tower and game refinery that help you like at a high level figure out what game should I make? But I feel like once you have that game, actually figuring out the features and how to implement the features and you know what parts of those features are liked by users or not, like I feel like that's missing. So if anyone's listening, go build that. You'll probably make a hundred million dollars for you. Because um, you know, there's so much wasted time that goes into I see teams spend, you know, two, three months on a feature and it moves nothing from a needle perspective, right? Um, so Thinking about features, I've seen some studios do this, and I, I find it curious. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, they make a new feature or hack whatever together, and rather than releasing it as a full feature, they release it as a live ops event to like test it and, and learn. Do people, you know, reside to it? Does it work well? And if we messed up, we can, you know, shut the events off and we can tweak it and maybe try it again or, or launch the full feature after we've optimized it. Um, have you ever used that technique before? Yeah, I, I would say yes and no. Um, so I, I think the the sort of the the 
challenge here is that a lot of time, all of the development work that goes into engineering that live ops event is pretty much getting you 80% of the way there to having that full feature anyway. So, so oh, yeah. why not? Um, I, I think in limited circumstances, though, you, you can definitely see it work. What I what I what I have tried to do before, and, and this is never actually manifested into like a full blown feature, but it's gotten somewhat close. Is do do the closest version that you can achieve to that with like whatever scrappy sort of tools that you can achieve, right? So, um, you know, I think that with uh, with uh, with The Walking Dead, for example, right? Like we did a lot of work with like sharding and things like that for how we delivered content to our players. Um, we use that as like kind of a prototype environment for a bigger feature that that released uh, kind of just after I left, uh, which is conquest mode, which is very, very heavily sharded. Um, looks a little, a little bit more uh, from a systems design standpoint, like AFK Arena. It, you can definitely test the waters and get like a, at least an approximate sense. But I think overall, if you're really questioning a feature and if it's going to help your business or not, uh, I think it's kind of an all or nothing proposition. Um, I think it's really, really important to be true and honest with yourself with like, hey, do we really think this is going to help retention? Do we really think this is going to help monetization? And I think it's important to look at your peers. There's actually a lot of information that you can learn just by looking at DAU or install volume or monetization from how successful a new feature might be. That's something that I've done countless times that I'm sure many people have done countless times, which is basically say, hey, uh, you know, this game just launched this achievements feature or they, this game just did this balancing change. What well, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Like we, we need the tracking so I can go back by release and see like what features came on that release and then I can track that against the monetization. That's that's what I want. To, exactly, know. exactly. I want that too. And honestly, I'm, uh, I I think here at Robin, uh, so I, I've been working, uh, I, I work with like a producer and I had another PM uh, and we, we did so, so, so much competitive research, like our ability to reverse engineer a lot of our title or a lot of our competitors and our, our sort of design uh, design keys or emulation targets, systems frameworks, and so even like economies. Um, we spent a lot of time understanding that. And I think we also spent a lot of time just like getting as much detail as we could from uh, those games, communities and like Facebook groups, things like that, to really try to pinpoint what's working, how players are feeling about it, and then how it's affecting their KPIs. I think the hardest part here is telemetry, right? Like it's really understanding, you know, how do I how do I kind of roll out the noise, other factors that might be affecting this, and how do I really understand the result? I just like Utah would love to understand better, like how to kind of perfect that. But I think we've actually gotten pretty close for for what could be done, um, and just by paying really, really close attention to our, our sort of um, our benchmarks uh, communities and like you know using the, the the data that we have available through things like Sensor Tower to kind of get us across the finish line or get us as, as close as we we can get. Yeah, no, that's great. Actually, so I, I did a deconstruction of, of Genshin with a couple other folks. Oh, it's been like a year or so, a year and a half. Yeah, time flies, man. Um, but one really interesting thing that I actually uncovered. So if you look at uh, my Hoyo's games over time, like you see them heavily evolved, as often happens with anyone really successful. Like Playrix kind of stays in the same genre, and you can see that they build on it. Scopely does it too. Um, but you look at my Hoyo's like journey over, and their game before Genshin was uh, Hunkai Impact Third. Now. Digging in, the concept of this open world Genshin came out like February, a couple of years before um, it was released. And then work didn't actually start on it. Three months later, they released an open world thing within Honkai Impact. And it had like the biggest impact on like uh, revenue and things, you know, there. And very shortly thereafter, Genshin was greenlit and started with $100 million of like building it out. So like 
they kind of use this like feature slash live ops event to like test, hey, this is actually really works. And they took the core of it and, you know, built Genshin and everything. But um, it, it was very fascinating to kind of watch that validation happen um, to the, the full product there. Um, I think the other company that I've seen, you know, do this before is like League of Legends. You know, they've got their core game and then every so often they'll release like a, a game mode. And once a game mode has like a certain level of like engagement and love and stuff, they'll actually permanently re release it. Like I know ARAM, you know, did that. Um, and I thought that was super clever because, well, one, players love this concept of new and trying things out. And I think that if they've set up their live ops tools like I would user-wise, correctly, it shouldn't take that much work to be able to change the rules on those, you know, game modes to launch them, um, effectively requiring probably basically zero dev work. Um, and then, you know, once you're finally decide, hey, this is actually works well, then you can, you know, take the steps to fully, you know, turn that into a game mode proper kind of a thing. Uh, but uh, I, I digress a little bit. Um, let's say, going back to game economy, I have one little question here I wanted to touch on before we kind of wrap up. So I know we're out of time. Um, but uh, let's say I find that I have an issue in my game economy. Um, how would you go about like diagnosing what's actually wrong with it and, and how to fix that? Yeah, so I, I think for me, like I, I always love to go back to first principles, but I also like to kind of like uh, come from the source, right? So I think like you really have to understand where things, where the where the beginning of the problem is and then do your sort of detective work to figure out like where the actual like missing piece is. So a lot of it's just telemetry, right? Like it's understanding cause and effect. It's understanding, um, you know, what, what where uh, of the different audiences that I have, those that are encountering an issue, those that might not be encountering the issue, what is, where, where can I identify those key differences? And then once I have those sort of like key differences identified, then I can kind of get to the root of the problem then look to address it. I think with, with economy design, especially like um, there are so many different opportunities, so many branching paths that can result in like complete deviations. The, the most important part is understanding those big transformational moments of, of the game, even if it's on like a daily basis, right? Like going from zero hard currency balance to like a thousand hard currency, that happens every day if it's if that's like the value of your login reward, but that's like a really big moment for gameplay, right? So I think just like kind of taking a step back, putting yourself in the shoe of the user and then understanding what are they actually doing to like drive this, drive this sort of cause and effect. That's like the most important thing to like figuring out, hey, what's wrong? And then what can I do to fix it? Do you ever, or have you like used some sort of tool where you can like clone the player at like a certain moment of time in their game and like play through where they're at or... How Absolutely. You, yeah. How do you actually figure out like what this player is trying to do? So like to me as a player, like when I play Clash Royale as an example, I always feel like they give me the stupidest like offers in the store. It's like, dude, I've been trying to level up Royal Giant for two months now. And why are you giving me archers? I never used archers. Like that's that's stupid. Like give me Royal Giants. I only need 500 more. Like I would spend on that to finish them right now. Um, but like how would they be able to look at me and to log in and to figure out like, hey, this player or players like this guy, they're obviously trying to like level up Royal Giants or, you know, whatever else 
a person might be trying to do at that point in time. Everyone has a goal, right? Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I'm aware of uh, really, really crazy operators like MachineZone, for example, right? Like they have extraordinarily sophisticated algorithms that kind of dissect every aspect of gameplay. I think also testing helps you to really engineer these outcomes, right? Like you can kind of set players down a certain path. And if you have a large enough player base and the resources to do it, you can get super, super granular to like replicate very, very specific use cases that you can then take and then monetize against or create features against whatever you need to do to sort of make that make that feed, make that player um, you know push them towards the outcome that you're looking for. So I think a lot of it is just really to the extent that you can gain that level of granularity with understanding the different outcomes that could manifest themselves, but also having the tools to react and sort of be triggered by and sort of serve up content based on those outcomes is really the kind of missing piece there. Because it's not just a matter of understanding, hey, player does X, Y, and Z, then they need, you know, they, now they need the, the Royal Giant. It's really also having the way to monitor and to track that gameplay, but then right at that moment that you need that Royal Giant or right at the moment that you need extra energy to do that next, next level, understanding that enough other users in that same situation have been more likely to churn, retain, monetize, whatever, and then taking the right course of action then and there to kind of remedy it. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with just machine learning and very, very detailed analytics. That's great. I love that. Okay. Well, final question, because we're out of time and this is the Master of Retention podcast. And that is, of course, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've kind of learned over the years to increase player retention? Like, how do you keep your players playing for longer? For, for me, it's been immersing myself in my products. Like, I, I remember when I was working on The Walking Dead, I was playing like 40, 50 hours of the game a week. You know, I think for every game that I play, I really try to get in and know exactly what the users are doing. And I try to get involved in the community. I think that's a really big, important part. So for me, it's really just, understanding what my players want, what they really care about, what they're interested in, and then doing all that I can to uh, create the experience or deliver the content to them that I think is going to create that level of satisfaction that I kind of like experience myself and that I know that they value deeply. It's really just about knowing your product, knowing your end user, and then doing whatever you can to make that match as perfect as possible. That's fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rudy. This has been great. Um, if people do have any questions or want to get in contact with you, is there a good way for them to do that? Uh, I reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, Rudy Salvar, you know, you'll you'll kind of know who I am. <laughs> uh, the product great. manager of Robin Games. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Bye.